This is the BBC. Thanks for downloading this episode of In Our Time. There's a reading list to go with it on our website and you can get news about our programmes if you follow us on Twitter at BBC In Our Time. I hope you enjoyed the programmes. Hello. Mathematics flourished in the early Islamic world from the 8th century onwards. Astonishingly versatile minds consumed all they could from Indian, Greek and Babylonian traditions, among others, and made extraordinary leaps of their own, which still affect what children in simple form are taught at school today. One, Khwarizmi, Al-Khwarizmi, May 780-815, made his reputation for algebra, a word taken from one of his great books, just as algorithm comes from his name, westernised into Latin. Another Persian, Omar Khayyam, now known for his poetry, solved complex cubic equations. They and many others were inspired by new calculations called for by the Quran, by translations radiating from Baghdad under the Abbasid Caliphs, and by the religious duty to seek knowledge. With me to discuss maths in the earliest Islamic world are Colvero Nidugal, reader in pure mathematics at the University of St Andrews, Peter Porman, Professor of Classics and Greco-Arabic Studies at the University of Manchester, and Jim Al-Khalili, Professor of Physics at the University of Surrey. Colbert, many mathematical traditions were drawn together in this period. Let's start with the Babylonians. What can you tell us about them and what did they offer to this period? So first, in terms of the location, the Babylonian Empire was centred in modern-day Iraq and neighbouring countries, so along the rivers Tigris and Euphrates. So it's in exactly the same place as the locations we're going to be talking about later. It's much, much older, though. So Babylonian culture started really flourishing about 3000 BC until about 200 BC. So it's as far before the the death of the prophet as, say, Chaucer is um, from us now. Um, In terms of what the maths of the Babylonian Empire was, they had an incredibly advanced culture at a very early age. Big cities, maybe as big as 60,000 people by maybe 2000 BC. So there's a lot of maths involved in the storing of grain, in issuing grain for agriculture, so not just the corn for the oxen who are going to plough the fields, but also the seed corn and then an expectation of a certain amount of corn to come back again. There was an extensive canal network because this is a river-based society. So digging of canals, remeasuring of fields after the rivers have flooded, meaning that you need to work out the correct area of the fields again. Um, And then also, of course, astronomical observations for fixing the calendar to work out when you should plant, when the floods are going to come, when you should harvest, all of that kind of thing. So Babylonian maths can probably be best described as algorithmic. We've got a lot of evidence of them solving... People who don't get that word easily, what would you say that meant? So what I mean is that we've got lots of um, clay tablets, which is how they wrote, where they're repeatedly solving similar kinds of problems. So a problem you might find in a Babylonian maths tablet is there's a rectangular field, the length is 10, let's say, metres, so we're not involved in Babylonian units, 10 metres longer than the width, and the area is 300 square metres, 3,000 square metres, what is the width? And the tablet will go on and describe the steps you need to take to solve that problem. To us, that's a quadratic equation. I'm saying that the breadth times the breadth plus 10 is 3,000, and so I'd write that as a little quadratic, but to them it's a series of steps. How is it algorithmic? So the solution would say something like you... uh, But how does that make it algorithmic? Because they're not writing an equation, they're not drawing a diagram, they're telling you what you do with the numbers in the question to reach the number in the answer. Why was their number base 60? 
We don't know. It's the very short answer. So the sixty years why a long we have. Time, hasn't it? We're still yeah. in sixty at the moment. I'm looking at that ticker going tick yep. tick tick. So 60 the, the sixty the minute, yeah. and and the three hundred and sixty degrees in a circle is also thanks to the Babylonians. We really don't know. I mean, my preferred belief is that it's coming from the fact that they're using lots of different units of measurement. So much like the imperial system, we've got twelve inches in a foot, three feet in a yard and then some number of yards in a mile. Um, the Babylonians had lots, lots yeah. and lots of different units of measurement which slowly coalesced into 60s. What about the Indian contribution? The Indian contribution... And we're talking about 300 BC when the Babylonians stung in, is that right? That uh, kind, yeah, so kind of that, right? What about uh, the Indian? So the Indian contribution is from, say, 800 BC through to the period we're going to be talking about. So, I mean, the Indian mathematics continued to be amazing up to about 1200 AD um, and even beyond. The Indian contribution is much more about mathematics in the service of astronomy and religion. So one of the interesting things with Indian mathematics is there's an early obsession with very, very large numbers. They were interested in finding the point at which all of the planets in the solar system would be realigned in the place that they were in the beginning, and this naturally leads to enormous numbers being considered. They were interested in measurement of the heavens so that you could predict eclipses, so that you could say when the um, various planets were going to be in the, the different uh, signs of the zodiac and that kind of thing. So again, they're solving equations, but they're not really thinking of them as equations per se. And the way in which they come down to us are often in the form of incredibly compressed poetical phrases, because the tradition is mostly oral, not written. And this makes a problem for historians. Jim, Jim Alcalini, this is called the Golden Age, often a great cross-fertilisation of ideas. What made that possible? Well, a lot of people assume that it, it started because of the birth of this new religion, uh, Islam, in Arabia, uh, whereas, in fact, for a whole century there was an Islamic dynasty, the Umayyads, where scholarship didn't really flourish. Uh, the Golden Age is really thought to have begun with the Abbasid dynasty, which began in the middle of the 8th century. Uh, The Abbasid caliph built his new uh, capital, Baghdad, uh, around about that time. And for me, I think the most important thing is the the Abbasids uh, uh, were very much influenced by Persian culture. Uh, And in Persia, there was this long, long tradition of scholarship and learning. And so they became obsessed with texts and books. So the Golden Age really began with a, a, a wonderful flourishing translation movement. This uh, Islamic empire which, uh, for which the, 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 uh, um, the language uh, was Arabic because that was the language of the holy book, the Quran, uh, they realised there was all these great texts from, from Greece, from India, from Persia, um, that they wanted to translate into Arabic. And that kick-started an obsession with learning, an obsession with scholarship. First of all, translating the great texts of the Greeks, Aristotle, Plato, Euclid, Galen uh, on medicine and then writing their own texts. Um, so we have that, but it, it is, it is well, you say, an obsession. Are we talking about Mahmoud Mahmoud? Uh, uh, and Mahmoud was, I guess... And he's the at person. the same time as, as Khwariz, uh, Khwarizmi, isn't he? Yes, yes, so early 9th century. So they're getting going in a very big way. Uh, absolutely. I mean, they'd already started get, getting going before then. He was born into a culture, an Abbasid culture, where there was an obsession with learning. He was the son 
of Harun al-Rashid, who yeah. famous because he appears as a character in The Thousand and One Nights, Nights, the Arabian Nights, and, and during the, the golden age of Baghdad. Baghdad was by this time, the early 9th century, the most important city in the world, probably the biggest city in the world. Do we, know, do we have a key? Is it a key in the Quran that you shall seek knowledge? Is that the key to the, the pursuit of learning and the devotion to learning of the caliphs? Um, to a certain extent, yes, but I don't think we should push it too far. Certainly in, in the Quran it does say you seek knowledge from the cradle to the grave. And certainly in the hadith of the prophets that you, you, you know, seek knowledge, even if you have to go as far as China. So there was certainly a, a, uh, an obsession with wanting to find out about the natural world and how things work. But it was also the influence of, as I said, Persian um, uh, uh, obsession with, with, with culture. And when we were talking about Indian, Indian influences coming in, that was, we think, that we had a tincture of the Chinese in it as well, so we're bringing in a lot of things. Can we talk about this house of wisdom? Mm. What did they mean by the house of wisdom, and was it, what, what sort of house was it? It's supposed to have lasted for 400 years. It is, in, it is contested. It what is contested, think? and I'd, I'd probably get into hot water with well, historians, but uh, <laughs> let, let, let's say what I think of it. Um, there was certainly potentially something called the house of wisdom, a bit like the Library of Alexandria, uh, many centuries earlier, which was a place where books were stored. It may have also been a translation house. This was in Baghdad. This was during the time of, of Al Ma'mun. It, it, it may have existed in some form or another in his father's palace. Uh, it might be a, a physical um, building separate. It might be part of a palace. But there's no archaeological evidence of such a Well, there's a real... no archaeological evidence of much at that time because it's all clay, wasn't it? But that, that's true. So that archaeologists probably have the wrong way to look, the, long, the wrong place to no. look. But was it a, was it a research centre? Was it a place where people went? Ah, oh, we can go there and be paid by the caliphs to get on with the work we want to do in mathematics. I believe it very well could have been. It may not have been the only such place in Baghdad. Baghdad will have been full of libraries and translation houses and places where the, the wealthy high society of the Abbasids would, would prov pr provide the money um, and the patronage to, to these scholars. But there probably was a place where people like Al-Khwarizmi and other scholars would gravitate to in the same way as the Library of Alexandria was a place where all the greatest thinkers would go and work. Peter Borman, um, do you agree with that... Uh... <laughs> well, I mean, wisdom. so it, it, there's uh, the myth of the House of Wisdom as this research uh, school, academy, and so on and so forth. And basically, there's very little evidence. Uh, so the House of Wisdom by Al-Hikmah or Khizanat Al-Hikmah, as it appears in our sources, is linked to some of the mathematicians we're going to talk about, uh, like Al-Khawarizmi. But his, his name is mentioned only in a late 10th century source in connection with this. And certainly the translation movement uh, has no direct link to this uh, house of wisdom. So the most important translator, Hunayn ibn Ishaq, uh, wrote a letter explaining how he translated Galen. Galen is a physician of the 2nd century. He dies in uh, 216 AD. And uh, basically um, he accounts of his translation activity and tells us how he translated it. And he never mentioned the House of Wisdom. We mentioned the Babylonians when we started with that, and then mentioned rather rather slightly, we must come back to them, to the Indians. <clears throat> but a big influence was the 
Greeks, the, the great translation movements which preceded the advances and the inventions we, that they're sometimes thought of as just translators, the Arabic, not at all. They built on that and built their own thing. The great translation movement, they translated almost all the Greek texts, but particularly the mathematics that we concentrated on. Can you tell us about that, especially Euclid? Yes, of course. Uh, so basically the two Greek mathematicians that most people know are Pythagoras and Euclid, and they have become household names uh, here uh, in England, in Europe more generally. But they were also, to a certain extent, house, household names uh, in the uh, Arab world. And uh, if you look at uh, Pythagoras, we all remember the Pythagorean theorem, uh, a square plus b square equals c square, you know, like for a rectangular uh, triangle. Um, um, that was certainly something that was known through Euclid. So uh, if you look at the Greek trend, uh, tradition, basically all the great philosophers like Plato and Aristotle had a keen interest in mathematics, but um, we don't have mathematical textbook by them. Of course, they sometimes discuss mathematics in their dialogues for Plato or elsewhere in their writings uh, as in Aristotle. Uh, but the first massive textbook uh, for mathematics that we have, and certainly one of the most successful textbooks of all time, are Euclid's Elements. Now, Euclid is a mathematician about whose life we know very little. He probably was active in Alexandria in the 3rd century BC, and uh, he wrote this massive textbook, The Elements. elements. What, did, what impact did his elements have on the Arab scholars when they translated it? Oh, it's it's absolutely massive. So uh, Euclid is one of the uh, earlier texts that gets translated uh, into Arabic. And uh, uh, basically, the whole discipline of mathematics as it later develops uh, is to a certain extent based on the translation of the elements and, and other uh, mathematical, uh, Greek mathematical texts such as Di Diophantus. Uh. Is there any way you can explain how the Greek and the Babylonian and the Indian intermingled? Do you have instances yes, of that? Oh, so, so, so basically, the, the Greek culture, sometimes people uh, used to talk about the Greek miracle. All of a sudden, in the 5th century BC, we have this great Greek culture and it's everything is a Greek invention. But we know, for instance, that, uh, you know, like the degrees of, uh, of angle of the 360 about which we talked, uh, these things uh, came from the Babylonians to the Greeks and the Greeks also took from the, uh, from the Egyptians to, to a large extent. So basically in the preface of the, or in the uh, frame narrative of the Timaeus, uh, 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 the young um, Socrates talks to the old uh, Solon, and Solon says to him that basically the Greeks are like children, and we have taken all our knowledge from the from the Egyptians. So Greek culture, like the culture we are going to talk about, was a culture that was able to take all sorts of uh, uh, knowledge from different cultures and integrate it. But uh, Euclid's, and we don't know for Euclid, for instance, we don't know exactly what did he. Uh, invent himself, what were his own discoveries and what did he take from his predecessors because we simply don't have the mathematical text of his predecessors. We're never going to get to the bottom of everything because influences <laughs> in all your brain, influences go back infinitely um, of but course. sort of talking about this time now, which that's mm. our subject this morning, they, it, they, they translated the Greeks, the Greeks were a massive influence, their geometry was a massive influence in this, in this extraordinary mix uh, and Colver um, how did uh, Algebra come into it? So, Greek mathematics was essentially geometric, 
Um, but what the Greeks had that the other cultures we've been talking about didn't was the concept of proof, and that you start with a bunch of what they call axioms and common notions. Those are in some sense the rules of the game. So one of Euclid's might be two things which are equal to a third thing are equal to each other. That's one of his common notions. And from those you construct a proof-based edifice. Algebra then was more about solving problems of areas and volumes. It wasn't a provable thing. Why did they think they needed algebra? They needed algebra to solve practical problems. So they needed algebra to solve problems like if I'm wanting to make a field have a certain size because all the field markers have been washed away and I know that it has this much width, how, how long do I need to make the field? But they wrote their algebra in... Their early algebra was written out in prose. So yes. why did they need to translate that prose, which had worked for quite a while, into algebraic symbols? Essentially because the prose is very difficult to understand. So the process of going symbolic takes a very long time. The process of going fully symbolic doesn't happen for and really until about the 1600s, 1700s. I mean, that's a long time later. But what we're talking about is the beginning of the understanding that there is a system called algebra which can solve all problems of this sort rather than merely a collection of instances of special cases and we can solve this one and that one and the other one. So it was necessary to, ne to take the next step to have these symbols because words were not enough. Yes. I mean, Except words had been enough until then to, to put forward how you divided up fields, how you divided up inheritance. In the laws of inheritance in the Quran, you left a quarter, a wife died a quarter to her husband, two to one to boys over girls and so on. It became very, very complicated. Words had solved that until then. I, can't, I just would, would love to get hold of the thing that said, yes, but one day they thought, <laughs> no, won't work, we need to do symbols. Well, th no, they're still writing in words. I mean, words is the case for, for almost all of this period. We're not about to go symbolic. The sense in which algebra is born is the understanding, it's a conceptual step that this is now a topic of study in its own right, that problems like this form a class of problems which, whilst related to geometry, any question about area could get turned into a geometric diagram, is also related to a process of things being on either side of something like an equal sign and adjusting them accordingly. So we're in a cast of mind, Jim, Jim Arkley, we're in a cast of mind very like the Greeks, which one of you described as aristocratic thinking, of thinking for thinking's sake. This is very interesting. We will sit and consider triangles all day because we needn't. Uh, that's what we do with our lives. Is that what's happening here? Uh, no, actually what is happening now, uh, in, in, in a way that the Greeks didn't do, was use mathematics to solve real practical problems. Issues like dividing up land for, for, for irrigation or, or uh, sorting out your taxes and running a huge empire. The Greeks were very much, you know, at the abstract thinking and a lot of their geometry that they But developed. how did they get to the algebra to do that? They were already doing quite well with words. Well, um, as Colver says, the, the, um, we, shouldn't we shouldn't say that algebra is all about symbols, X and Y. Symbolic algebra is a, is a, is a way of doing things more, uh, more efficiently. But algebra itself, all the way through the, the Islamic period, didn't have symbols. They had to wait for people like Descartes. Um, uh, so they were writing everything rhetorically, everything in prose, and that didn't slow them down in terms of doing algebra. So when we say Al-Khwarizmi is the uh, a founder or reinventor of algebra, what is he reinvented that we would consider to be algebra? Well, what he was doing, as opposed to someone like Diophantus, the, 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 the Greek, Greek, was that he wasn't looking at specific, or indeed the 
Babylonians. He wasn't looking at specific examples. So when, when I teach something in my physics lectures, I give a general method, derive an equation, general um, ideas, and then I say, OK, let's look at some examples. What if you have this and this, and let's sol- use this, this method to solve this example? The Greeks and Babylonians were just looking at specific examples. What Al-Khwarizmi did for the first time in his text, in his book of algebra, was give the general recipe, the general algorithm. And only later, in the second half of the book, does he say, let's look at specific examples if, you know, you, you, you emancipate a slave and you die and you have three children and so on. So, he, so for him, and th- the reason why we say he is the father of, of the, the field of algebra is because he described it as a discipline in its own right in general rather than looking at specific problems. So this is a different way of thinking from that employed by the Greeks where they thought in an abstract way. You don't think he's thinking in an abstract way here? No, he's very much thinking about something. His book was very much a book for the wider public. You know, he's saying here are lots of different problems that you will encounter in daily lives. Taxation. Here's, taxation, for example. Mm. Here's how you go about solving these, these problems. I'm going to give you the technique that you need to use for solving any such problem of this type. Peter Pullman, could we develop this? He is still called, you emphatically call him the father of algebra and he changed mathematics at that, by doing that. What do you mean by that? Well, I mean, to put it very simply, the Greeks solved problems, the, the Arabs or Persians in this case solved equations. So, you know, when you solve these general equations, you have to, you know, I mean, you take it to another level of abstraction. I mean, let, you, let me give you just one very quick example from Dio, Diophantus. Uh, uh, so Diophantus was a mathematician who lived roughly in the 3rd century uh, AD and he opens... Um, his arithmetics, uh, his uh, book, uh, with a problem where he says, okay, assume that you want to add two numbers. The difference between these two numbers is uh, 40, and uh, you want to... um, uh, And you add the the two numbers together, and you get to, to 100. So how do you solve this? And then he will go through concrete steps. He will say, okay, there's one number. Let's call it X. He doesn't call it X. He calls it just number. And then there's another number, which is... 40 more, so it's x plus 40. So then you have twice x to x plus 40 equals 100. Then you take 40 away on each side. Uh, Then you have 2x equals 60. And then you divide it by 2 on both sides, and you have x equals 30. And then you know, aha, the lower number is 30. And then you add 40 to the lower number, and then you have 70, and you have solved this particular problem. I mean, that's the first problem and the easiest. Uh, there, And this is something which she didn't invent. This has long, 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 long been uh, solved. But, I mean, not to go, go into very complicated equations, but that's the kind of thing the Greeks do. So they, you have concrete examples and concrete solutions, whereas uh, uh, in uh, um, Al-Khawarizmi's uh, um, book on algebra, basically you, you solve equations, general equations, and not these concrete examples. Why is that better, and why do you think that was the turning point? Well, I mean, it's it's another level of abstraction. It, uh, uh, it opens a whole field of mathematics, basically. What's that field? Well, algebra. Yeah, but, no, I, I know that, I know no, that. I'm sorry. People uh, want to know what we're talking about. And that field, it therefore, includes what, which had not been included before? Well, you know, solving... Uh, uh, quadratic cubic equations. Uh, That's not... what I wanted to know. Yeah, and sorry. No, no, please continue. No, uh, and uh, so basically solving 
ever more complicated equations that uh, require ever greater levels of abstraction. That's really well, what happens there. So it opened the door to a whole new area of knowledge, is what you're saying? Yes, absolutely. Or a, a whole way of dealing with undiscovered knowledge. Indeed, yes, yeah. and to go far beyond the Greeks. So of course, they could never have done anything without also looking at the heritage, uh, the Greek, the Babylonian, the uh, indirectly the Babylonian and uh, the Indian heritage, but um, they really make progress and it's not for, for nothing. This is why we use these terms still, you know, both in astronomy and in mathematics, we have these Arab words because for throughout the Middle Ages, basically, uh, this field of mathematics was always associated with, uh, with the Arabs. Colma. Yeah, so just as a maybe more concrete example of one of the things that Al-Khwarizmi did that changed what algebra was, he was the first time ever in history to systematically say these are the types of quadratic equation. If you might have a quadratic equation, so he wouldn't have called it a quadratic equation, but an equation in squares, roots and things. So we've got some squares, which is the x squared bits. We've got some roots, which is the multiples of x. And we've got some things, which are the numbers. For him, there's six different kinds of quadratic equation because he's not happy yet with negative numbers or zero. So depending on how they're arranged either side of the equal sign, he gets different sorts. He recognises that the study of things like that is a topic in its own right and that it's worth classifying those six things and giving methods of solution to those six things so that now any problem involving squares, roots and things, the reader can solve. How did the modern number system develop in, in the period in which we're talking in this high Islamic culture? Uh, this is a fascinating story, but it's, um, it's, a, it's a bit murky in terms of sources. So we've already mentioned that the Babylonians had a base 60 system for their numbers. So, for example, if they wanted to write 61, they'd write it like 11 because it's 1 times 60 plus 1. The Indians had developed essentially our modern way of writing numbers where we use the symbols... 1 through 9 plus the special 1, 0, which means there's nothing there. And each symbol, when we write it down, has more than one piece of information associated with it. So when I write down 31, the 3 is indicating both some kind of 3-ness and, because it's got a 1 after it, that it's 3 tens rather than just 3 ones. So the 3 there is being 30 because of its position and the actual symbol written down. That system was invented by the Indians, we don't know exactly when, maybe 200, 300 AD, something around that time period, and slowly spread west. We know that it had reached as far as Syria by the 600s because there's a lovely quote from a Syrian Christian bishop complaining about the Greeks thinking they know everything and the Indians are marvellous. So it definitely made it through into the... Arab Islamic world by that time period but and it's a massive advance on either the Roman numeral system which is horrendous for division or the Babylonian system which doesn't match how we say numbers. You would go along with that would you Jim? Uh, yes I'll, I'd, I'd just say that I think the, the, the decimal system which we now call which Hindu now call numerals it, yeah. or Hindu Arabic numerals it, it, well, uh, we haven't really talked about the. We, we, we're talking about it without having described it. So, could you say what the decimal system is and how that came in? Um, well, it's it's a it's a positional numbering system, as Colver explains. So, whereas the Babylonians would have used base sixty, so you go one to fifty nine, and then you start again. Um, binary that computers use zeros and ones. That's base two because you're zero one, and then you start again the next unit. The Indians gave the world the decimal system one to nine, and then you start again in units of 10 and 100 and so on. Uh, and 
although that was transferred to the, the Middle East, and, and this, this lovely story, this, this Syrian bishop, Severus Sabacht, or whatever his name was, um, it, it didn't really catch on. The, the, the um, um, scholars in the Islamic world at that time were using a mixture. They were using Babylonian sexagesimal, base 60. They were using the Greek method of l- letters denoting numbers. Uh, and they were very reluctant to use this new decimal system. Even when it transferred to Europe, there were Europeans who came and translated texts from Arabic into Latin, took it back. Europeans were very sceptical. They thought it was evil, Islamic um, number system that they should never use. So there was this wonderful method that we all use around the world today that took centuries to catch on, both in the Islamic world and later on in Europe. And so we, the, the fractions and the decimals took a long time. To, they weren't used at the time we're talking about, in the, in the time of the golden age of Islamic mathematics. They started they were discovered, to be. As it were, they were, they they were dis- yeah, discovered. So we have to make a distinction between the decimal system, the one to nine plus the zero that was inherited from, from India, and then the decimal fractions. Because even after people started to use decimal systems, they were still using fractions instead of, you know, naught point something. The earliest we know of uh, the use of uh, the decimal fractions is a translator of Euclid called the Euclidean, uh, um in a text in the 10th century Baghdad. He, he, he first uses, he says, it's much easier, actually, to do calculations. Rather than using fractions, dividing one number over another, you can write it in this method. He doesn't put a decimal point. He puts a, uh, a prime over the, the last number before the decimal point. Peter Borman, while this is going on, uh, most of the ideas, as I understand it, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, are still being expressed in prose. What effect did this have on the transmission of ideas at the time? We're talking about 8th, 9th, 10th, 11th, 12th centuries. Well, there's a continuity in a way, because as we said, the Greeks largely, with the exception of Diophantus, used prose uh, to describe mathematics, and when this is then translated, it is translated as prose into Arabic, and so that's... Um, relatively straightforward, although, of course, you have to invent certain terms for certain concepts that are novel. Um, But uh, the texts that are then written, uh, the whole field of algebra as it develops, develops very much uh, in prose, as we have said. So basically, you would describe one plus a number plus a root uh, plus a square equals that or the other. So it is all written out in prose, and the symbols uh, come in again, much, much later. And that also facilitates the transition from Arabic into Latin, which is so important for the developments uh, in the um, European Middle Ages. And we're talking about a time when the the spread of knowledge, if you're in this house of wisdom, whether (laughs) real or or virtual house of wisdom, which put that to one side at at the moment, um, we're talking about a time when Knowledge was going was being transferred very slowly outside those tight groups. Groups we're talking about manuscripts, a book written, which would take a very long time for a person to do to be passed on. So, can you tell us what if what what, what the consequence of that was that knowledge spread so slowly? Well, I would slightly disagree with that uh, proposition because what happens in the in the Islamic Empire is that paper becomes available. So, from China, it is invented in China, but spreads to the Arab world, and we have many many more manuscripts. Uh, 
and much higher production of books uh, in, let's say, 9th century Baghdad than anywhere else uh, in Europe at the time. So, And a text that is written you know, in one part of the Islamic world could very quickly travel to other parts of the Islamic world. So even Al-Andalus, you know, like Muslim Spain, there are mathematicians there, there's their contributions, there are scientists, there are physicians who kind of partake in the same scientific discourse um, as those people who are in the heartlands. And the same goes for the East, if you think of a philosopher like Avicenna, for instance, uh, uh, who's also a physician. He um, hails, of Persian origin, hails from the East, uh, spends most of his life in what is nowadays Afghanistan and Uzbekistan, but is very quickly discussed and received and analyzed uh, in the West. So these texts uh, do travel and that's um, that's very important, and so the, the 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 development of the language basically that Arabic is the scientific language that is used from the shores of the Guadalquivir to the shores of the Ganges, that really made uh, all this possible. Thank you for correcting me. Very good, <laughs> <laughs> Colby. Um, Colby, we know Omar Khayyam. Most people know about him for the Rubaiyat that he wrote, but he was more my people like you. He's considered more highly as a mathematician than a poet. Anyway, so he was a great mathematician. Why? Well, so we, I'd already mentioned that Al Khwarizmi was the first person to really classify quadratic equations and say this is all the sorts there are. Khayyam takes it one step further. He classifies all of the kinds of cubic equations. So this is all of the equations beginning with x cubed, x times x times x, and then some squares, and then some roots, and then some numbers. He breaks them all down into different types, and then he's longing to give what we would call an algebraic solution to these types of cubics, but he can't. The methods just aren't there yet. The maths isn't there yet. But what he does that's completely astonishing is he's able to give a geometric solution, by which I mean... He shows that if you construct a curve of this type and then you intersect it with a curve of that type, then the length of some lengths like this are going to be the roots to your equation. And he comments that he'd love to give an algebraic solution but hasn't been able to. He's also able to give approximate solutions to cubic equations. And so he sets the whole world of maths off on a race to solve cubics that wasn't eventually settled for another four or five hundred years after him. This took a long time to happen. Jim, Jim Al-Khalili. Let's talk about the number zero. There are three, you emphasise there are three sorts of zeros. There's the, 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 the Babylonian zero, there's, there's the Greek yes. zero, and there's a the later zero. So can we flip through the first two and get to the third one? Yes, and, and the reason why it's fascinating is because for a lot of people, if they say, oh, you know, what did the Arab world give us? Oh, they invented zero. And, of course, that's one of the things they didn't give us. Um, and, and so what you mean by zero is important. If we just mean zero as a, as a symbol, as a placeholder, so let's say, how do you tell the difference between it, the numbers 11 and 101? There's got to be something between the two ones to, to, to show... The Babylonians did that. The Babylonians did that. They came up with a... Um, uh, first of all, it was just a gap, then they came up with a symbol. So they first came up with that um, notion of a placeholder around about 300 BC. Later, the Mayans developed their own symbol. So a symbol for zero, Babylonians. And the next one... Around about the same time, the concept of zero, and that I think we, we will uh, attribute to Aristotle. He, he describes the concept of nothingness. How did he describe it? It was just nothingness, a void, the, a, the void, circle, the, yeah. the vacuum. He wasn't thinking of it as a number. He wasn't doing the so mathematics. It was philosophical rather than it mathematical. Was, indeed, indeed. Yeah. But when we talk about zero as a number that sits halfway between plus one and minus one, that is given credit to, the, to Indian mathematicians. People like um, Aryavata in the early 6th century, Brahmagupta, um, and it was sort of inherited as a package with the decimal systems 1 to 9 
by the Islamic world. So this gave you a continuous line of numbers going infinitely back minuses and infinitely forward pluses. Um, Did that give you the first taste of that? The idea of infinity and division by infinity, I I think, comes comes much later. Well, Aristotle talked about uh, zero. Yes, but but that's because he he didn't like the concept of infinity. He didn't think infinity existed. (laughs) All right. When we got Um, this zero, then when we got the third zero between between mm. the two the two ones. That, did that or did that not give us a continuous line in numbering that they hadn't had before? No, no. It, right. it, 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 it took a while. Um, well, the, um, even in the Islamic world, so if people like Khwarizmi in his um, algebra still didn't use the notion of zero. So a, a nice example is what number, if you uh, multiply it by two, gives an answer that's the same as if you square that number? And the answer is two, because you t- two times two is four, and the square of two is four. But there's another solution, zero. Because if you double zero, it's zero, and you square zero, it's zero. In the Arab mathematicians, people like Khwarizmi, I should say Arab, he's a Persian, those who wrote in Arabic didn't acknowledge zero as a solution. When they wrote their equations, even in prose, they avoided having something, something, something equals zero. There's al- they'd always stick a number on the other side of the equation. So it was very slow in being part of mathematics as a real useful number. That's right, because they couldn't find a use for it, was that? They didn't see a need for it. Right. I think they could, have, they could avoid it. That took sort of later in Europe before it really caught on. Peter Pullman, we, let's say we're getting towards the 12th, 13th century. What's the, uh, what is the interchange with Europe at this time, with what we, with we Europe? I mean, they're in the, 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 the Arab, they've taken over Spain and so on, but with the rest of Europe. Yes, so basically... Just as a lot of Greek texts got translated in the ninth century into Arabic, so a lot of Arabic texts got translated into Latin. Um, that's true for philosophy, for, for, for medicine, but also in particular for mathematics. For instance, somebody called Robert of Chester um, translated the book on algebra by Al-Khawarizmi, and that became a fundamental text for Europe. And on the basis of this Latin translation, Basically, mathematics in Europe, in Latin, took off. And translation is, again, at the core uh, of uh, the spread of knowledge and the development of new mathematics. And so it became rather hitty-missy what got translated and what didn't get translated. Latin took over as the language of learning from Arabic, which had been the language of learning for four or five, it depended on at least several hundred years of the Golden Age. Um, And what... Affected this up. Can we talk about Fibonacci and give us a just concrete example of Fibonacci? What did he do that was important for the development of this story? So Fibonacci uh, was born probably in Pisa, and his dad was a representative of the Pisan merchants in North Africa. So Europe is now where at the 12th, 13th centuries, Europe is beginning to trade again, um, properly send out trading missions. So his dad is living in what's now Algeria. Um, and Fibonacci grows up there and then travels widely through North Africa. He must have just been interested in things. And in particular, he learnt what he calls the Hindu Hindu numerals. And he also learnt how to solve basic algebra problems. And he went back to Europe and he wrote one of the first books that really took off. So it's called The Book of the Abacus. And it's describing how to use the Indian numerals for trade and accountancy, how to use methods with them to convert currencies um, and how to solve various other simple problems. He was also an amazing number theorist, but that's by the by. (laughs) (laughs) So, Jim, can I just Mm. take take us towards the end of this story? When Arabic, the, the great 
ascendancy of Arabic. Uh, uh, it went on. It's quite, Peter is very stern about this, that it didn't stop in the 13th century. It went on, moved to Samarkand and continued. Mm. But the European scientists, we, we have Galileo and, and we have, uh, are moving in, as it were. And the translation like, what was... You feel that there was a great loss and even a belittling of what the Islamic uh, sci- uh, mathematicians had done. They had discovered a lot of these things, which the Europeans built on but didn't acknowledge, or they got lost, as it were, in but translation. I, I, I don't think there's anything particularly insidious no, about no, trying I didn't to hide it. That. No, but, but, but you, you, um, do, you do use the word belittle. So, yeah, yes, yeah. I, I think. Um, First of all, it's serendipity which Arabic texts tended to get translated into Latin. You think things like star charts in astronomy. Very often it's not the greatest astronomers whose work is then used by the likes of of Marco Polo or Christopher Columbus. It's other lesser-known astronomers. Um, But certainly the great scientists in Europe during the Renaissance, the birth of of science in Europe, people like Copernicus, in his text on astronomy, um, he acknowledges Islamic uh, astronomers and mathematicians, uh, and he uses their techniques. But Europe then, you know, with the likes of Galileo and Kepler and Newton, um, science developed and mathematics developed so quickly that it's almost inevitable that the earlier uh, mathematicians of the Islamic world why do get they, forgotten. Why were they developed so quickly? And we still have, as you, you've all suggested, it's going on mm. in the Irish-speaking world. Why didn't they join in this push forward? Various reasons. I would argue that it's the fragmentation of the of the great empire. We're not talking about a huge, unified Abbasid empire as there was in the 9th, 10th century. There are, there are kingdoms and fiefdoms and caliphates and they're arguing and fighting against each other. I also think it's important that in the Islamic world, the Arabic-speaking world, they didn't take on the printing press. That was seen as very much a no-no. It's part of their culture that they would use scribes and calligraphy was very important. And just as Peter mentioned that paper was very important to propagating books in the early translation movement in the Islamic world, not adopting the printing press until much later kept them held back behind Europe. Did it, did, oh, wouldn't it, right, just not, not doing it that way, but doing it the other way stopped them Start in, in sort of aborted their intellectual engagement. Well, it just meant Europe saying? overtook them far more quickly. Would you agree with that, Peter? Well, I mean, so basically, there's this idea that there's decline, and we had a golden age, and I don't know after Al Ghazali who dies in the early 12th century, 1111, or uh, after another date, uh, everything goes down uh, downhill. But uh, is that really true? So basically, people have looked at philosophy, have looked at medicine and see that there are flourishing traditions of medicine, of philosophy, to less extent also of mathem- mathematics that uh, develop in the 13th, 14th, 15th, 16th, 17th, 18th centuries. And uh, the interchange with Europe does not start. So basically, if you look at the co- the Ottoman court in the 17th century, there are Latin texts that are translated into into Arabic. There's uh, there a Greek text like uh, the philosopher Pletho, for instance, uh, um, who is uh, very much a Renaissance man, um, is translated into into Arabic. So the so the 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 exchange doesn't stop, and of course, ultimately, the Ottoman Empire declines. But um... finally, Jim, what would you say? What would you say was the chief legacy of this uh, four or five hundred years of? Um, well, it's certainly more than just um, looking after the, the great knowledge of the Greeks and in order to hand it back to Europe when it reawakens. Uh, we've, we've been talking about mathematics, but that's just one of many disciplines yeah, in yeah. knowledge. Yeah, but let's stick to mathematics. What was the legacy of that? I would say the development uh, beyond what the Greeks did, which was essentially number theory and geometry, they gave us 
algebra, they gave us trigonometry, two other independent f- branches of mathematics. I'm afraid, I know you, you want to come in, Colbert, but time's up, I'm afraid. Thank you very much, Peter, Peter Pullman, Colbert, Rony Dougal and Jim Al-Khalili. Next week we'll be talking about Seneca the Younger, the philosopher and tutor to the Emperor Nero. Thank you for listening. And the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests. <laughs> anyway. What no, what, we, I, what I really wanted to say was I think you want they, they defined pre- mathematics. They defined what we now think of as mathematics. So for mm. the Greeks, maths was an exercise in proof and geometry, and that was it. It was quite inward-looking and quite sterile, essentially, mm. and would probably have fizzled out in some funny way. What the Babylonians did was... It was what the um, Islamic Golden Age did for us was mathematics is about shapes it's about numbers it's about proofs it's about maths applied to itself for its own sake it's also about maths applied to real world problems like mm. like physics or like engineering or all yeah. the rest of it and this notion about the shape of the discipline that is mathematics is i think what the arab world gave and they applied to it Europe. to other disciplines so they yeah. ma- they people like ibn al-haytham mathematized optics mathematized astronomy uh, so whereas these were observational um, disciplines and ideas that the Greeks had, they applied rigorous mathematics to it. And to philosophy. I mean, we didn't mention Al-Kindi, but uh, so the translation yeah. of Euclid, you have like these proofs which, uh, you know, you, you basically, it's called a reductio ad, ad absurdum. So you basically have a proof, you say A is, can't be the case, B can't be the case, C can't be the case, D can't be the case. These are the four <laughs> possibilities. Uh, therefore, the whole thing can't be the case. And uh, this is a, philo- uh, a method of uh, proof, you know, which we, you find in Euclid, and uh, which then is taken up by Alkindian. This is how he does his and it goes philosophical the other way as well. Proofs. If you say this is the case, this is the case. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 of course. Does, <laughs> no, no, does, does, does Alkindi prove that infinity can't exist using some simple <laughs> mathematics? That's a, 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 a very, very, very clever mm. for his time. Yeah. So basically, the, there, are, there are proofs, and the, and. Uh, you you set up di- you know dilemmas or dichotomies and uh, you prove various subsections as impossible and therefore prove the whole um, proposition as impossible and that is a friend of mine Peter Adamson who was on the program many times uh, uh, he called this reductio ad, ad, ad absurdum ad infinitum because Kindi uh, <laughs> <laughs> does it so often you know so my, my, my argument about the House of Wisdom. Um, against historians who are more sceptical. Well, Peter, the... Peter with be held, held like... <laughs> he, 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 he did have With great dignity. Exactly, that's right. And I would say uh, the, av- uh, the absence of evidence isn't the evidence of absence. Mm. Um, uh, but symbolically, it's such a powerful well, notion that it's yes. sort of... Uh, I'm sort of not You're that interested. It isn't true, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't care if there was a building or if it was a, a special room inside the Caliph's Palace. For me, it was, and the whole of Baghdad was 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 a, a magnet. But for, that, for that's it. Scholars. I think that's the so basically, Baghdad is the city of probably half a million, possibly even a million inhabitants from all over the place. It's a melting pot, and uh, you know, if you could make it there, you could make it everywhere. You know, so this was this was really what is uh, yes, so fascinating. Be... And it's not it's not like this house of wisdom. So there was probably this house of wisdom as a palace library, but it didn't play such a role in the whole translation movement. Uh, but that's in a way not important. And if you look at the sponsorship for the translation movement, the sponsors were not the caters themselves, uh, but uh, you know, like uh, high ranking. 
court officials such as the Banu Musa, you know, mathematicians, uh, you know, sons of a highwayman turned plutocrat. Or the, or the Persian, the Bama kids, you know, the yeah, Persian sure. viziers, you know, there's that, that obsession of Persian culture with learning. And they were rich. They were you know, pouring money into yeah, translations. One of the things we didn't really get into is the attitudes to education. So, I mean... For the for the Babylonians, they they one of the other reasons they thought maths was important was that they believed that the the future elite, the future rulers, needed to go through years of having algebra beaten into them <laughs> to train the brain of, of of the future directors of things. Whereas I think the Greeks had a more kind of humanities including mathematics notion for what the what the upper classes should be doing. And then once we get into the the um, Indian world, then it's only certain families that need to learn mathematics. You only need to learn it if you're mm. from an astronomical family and you've inherited the role of astronomer. In the Islamic Golden Age, we suddenly reach this phase where people are meant to be informed. It is good for them in general to be informed and to learn and to study and to study incredibly broadly. But maths is a core part of, of mm. what any cultured person should be able to master. Well, you've got the, the Greek thing is, I, you know, I was going to ask if you could assess the relative weight of the different influences. The Greek has a heck of a start with Plato saying, oh, oh Bobby's Academy, if nobody comes in if you, they don't if know mathematics. Yes, yeah. Better words to that effect. Yeah. Yeah, the, I mean, the Greeks, you've got to give them their due. They've got to give them their due. They're very about this. No, I mean, they are, I mean, I mean the, the point is, we, we, so many of the Greek scholars are still household names today, yeah. Aristotle and Plato, and you could, but not as many in the Islamic period are and it's just to show that in so many of these disciplines it's a continuum it's, it's a baton yeah. handing over knowledge yeah. from one civilization culture yeah. to the other yeah. so it's filling in that gap between the greeks and the renaissance in europe that is important <laughs> but it's not to say that i, I remember once yes. giving a, giving a talk saying you know, there's a football match between sort of the islamic scholars and the <laughs> greek scholars and, and you can very easily list you know all 11 the whole sort of first team of, of the greeks yeah are household names, but yeah. not as many. You know, you've got Avicenna and Baruni, uh, you know, bossing the midfield, and then you've got <laughs> Tulsi and Kayan somewhere, somewhere as me, you know, in the in defence. The real but, problem would be finding the referee, wouldn't it? That is true. Yes, that that would be a different problem. <laughs> one, one thing we didn't mention was a lot of the other, you know, a lot of um, the, other the later uh, yeah. mathematicians. So Al Kashi is a particular. Uh, favourite of mine, 15th century. He's, he's regarded as the greatest mathematician in the world in the 15th century. Yeah. So at the end of the Islamic Golden Age, but before the great mathematicians of Europe start yeah. emerging, and he, um, you know, he he develops so many ideas. He he calculates pi to 16 decimal places, and 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 uh, yeah, that, yeah. Far, yeah, yeah, far better than uh, Archimedes could do you know, yeah. before. But but he, but not only does he do that, he he says in advance, I'm going to calculate it to this accuracy. Therefore, I need it to this much. I need yeah. it to, so these are this is how and accurate. There's also a calculation out. of the circumference of the world, isn't there? Really? That's that's yeah. that's Beiruni, yes, yeah. the, the, the Da Vinci of the Islamic world, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, and we had length of the year to within milliseconds. So it's just astonishing. Yeah, that was Kayam. Yeah, that was Kayam. I mean, I was busy talking. Like cubics, I couldn't do the year as well. Probably better come next week. Yeah, yeah, that's a part two. Part two. (laughs) Here's the producer with an offer. It is tea or coffee. Who likes tea or coffee? Coffee. And for more podcasts on arts and ideas from the BBC, follow the link on our website to the best of BBC Radio 3's free thinking programme. With so many new podcasts, how do you find your next obsession? Try Pocket Casts, the free podcast app designed by listeners for listeners. With curated recommendations, discovery is easy and seamless. 
When you find something you like, just hit play. Find all your favorite shows, old and new, at pocketcast.com or find us in the Apple app or Google Play stores. 